Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone, and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. And my name is Deb Rugger, and in this episode, we will discuss the relationships between bond yields, inflation, and interest rates. If you want me to discuss a specific topic, or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. I call them the three E's. The first E is to be educated and improving your financial literacy. And that leads to the second E, which is to be empowered. Because improving financial literacy means you can be empowered and take that knowledge back to your advisor and speak at a level that both of you can understand in. And the third E is to be entertained. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, not an accountant, not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions after listening to one of my episodes back to your credentialed advisor. In other words, don't listen to some random guy ranting on the internet about money. If you're stuck on what to do, here are some basic, simple steps to get you on the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is you've got to pay yourself first. You've got to take at least 20% of after-tax money and put it aside because you are the most important person in your life. Step two is invest that money, ideally into something you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand the stock market, so I just invest in the stock market via index funds. Step three is wherever possible, you got to reinvest dividends. The power of compounding by reinvesting dividends is phenomenal. Step four is you've got to do it for the long term. Now, traditional financial advisors may advise you maybe 5, 10, or 15 years. In my humble opinion, I think long-term has to be at least 20, 30, if not 40-plus years. Of course, the longer you do it, the better it is for you, which means the earlier you start, the better it is for you. And step five, my favourite, is wherever possible, you've got to automate the investment forever. With automation means you're less likely to muck it up and more likely to simply follow the plan. If you did your simple five steps over the long term, you're more likely to end up with more money than you'll ever need. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. Before we head into the main topic, I had a question from Anon who asks, is it essential to max out your superannuation concessional contributions? That's a really good question. And the answer to that is, it's a very personal decision. Now, just a bit of a background about concessional contributions. You're allowed to contribute up to $27,500 per year to your superannuation, including your employer contributions. Your employer contributions are also part of the concessional contributions limit. 
And these contributions are generally treated in a tax-advantaged manner. And that means that you only pay 15% flat tax on these contributions. So if your total contributions is $27,500, of which, say, $20,000 is your money and $7,500 is your employer contributions, the total tax you pay on those total contributions is around $4,125. Now, supposing you decided that you didn't contribute the extra $20,000 and just relied on your employer contributions of $7,500, and supposing your tax rate is around 30%, the total tax you pay now is 15% of $7,500, which is $1,125, plus the marginal tax rate of 30% of 20000 which you would have earned rather than contributed to your super, so your tax on the 20 k is now 6000 So your total tax now becomes $7,125, compared to what it was before, which was $4,125. So when someone asks me, is it essential to max out your superannuation concessional contributions? Well, I think it's essential to utilise all the tax-efficient strategies, which are completely legal, to build wealth. So in scenario one, where superannuation is maximised, the total tax bill is $4,125. In scenario two, where super is not maximised, the total tax bill is $7,125. Now that is $3,000 more tax. Now, if your tax bracket is 40%, you'll save even more money if you maximised your concessional contributions limit. The higher your tax bracket, the more savings you will have when it comes to taxation. Now, it's not all rosy. There are some downsides to maxing out your super. And the major downside is it's money you technically can't access very easily until preservation age. So you need to be cash flow positive and ensure you have enough money in case of emergencies. So if you're young and probably are going to need the money to buy a home or fund for children's education needs, then it may not be wise to lock away any investments until retirement unless you're absolutely sure you don't need the money until then. So with anything in investment and superannuation and personal finance, there are pros and cons, but fundamentally... The Australian government is giving you an opportunity to save on tax legally, which can be used to fund for your retirement. Because at the end of the day, the Australian government want you to fund your own retirement. They don't want you to rely on the government pension when you retire. So if at all possible, and you think you can afford it, maximising superannuation, particularly the concessional contributions as much as you can, is phenomenal and fantastic. It's basically free money. So hopefully that answers Anon's question about is it worth or necessary to maximise concessional super contributions. Now to the main topic, interest rates, inflation and bond yields. Are they all related and if so, in what way? Now to discuss this in detail, we need to understand the three concepts well. So what is a bond? It's basically a debt instrument. So when you buy a bond, You're buying it from either a government or a corporation. There are other types, but I'm trying to keep this as simple as possible. And the bond has what's called a coupon rate, maturity date, and a face value. So here's an example of a bond. 
let's say the Australian government issues bonds, so these are government bonds, and you decide to buy a bond which has a face value of $10,000, with a maturity date of three years in the future and a coupon rate of 1% per annum. So what does this mean? Well, this means that you are lending the Australian government a sum of $10,000, and after three years, they promise to pay you back $10,000. And we know that the Australian government has a AAA rating, so they're very unlikely to default on their loan. In other words, there is almost zero credit risk. And every year, they promise to pay you a percent coupon rate, which is around 100 bucks, and that's called the interest payments. Now, note the interest payments or interest rates doesn't change for the entire term of the bond, but the yield rate might change. That is, if the bond price changes, it affects the yield rate, which is completely different to the coupon rate, which is just the basic interest rate. And you can buy bonds from governments, municipals, corporates, or even invest in bond ETFs or index funds. Now, there are a myriad of options. So that's bonds. Then what's inflation? Well, this is when every year the price of things go up. Or in other words, every year the purchasing power of your money goes down. Generally, you know, 2 to 3% is considered good rates of inflation every year. And it's actually considered a good thing. So why is some inflation a good thing? Why is it a good thing that money gets devalued every year? Well, because it encourages people to spend their money today rather than hoard it for tomorrow. Which is kind of ironic because when it comes to investment, we want and I certainly want people to hoard their money at least 20% of after-tax income so they can invest it. Now, if inflation doesn't exist, then people will just keep their money because they know it'll be worth more in the future. And if people hoard their money, all of it, and don't spend very much of it except from essentials, it means that they won't be contributing to the economy, which, of course, doesn't do well for business. And we know that businesses and consumer spending drives the economy. And therefore, if you don't spend money, it can be a disastrous outcome. Now, the third thing is interest rates. So what are interest rates? Well, the federal interest rates, or this is when the RBA, basically, the Reserve Bank of Australia, you know, very powerful people sit in a secret meeting room and discuss all the economic parameters. And I think they do this once a month and they set the monetary policy and that's called the monetary policy. Now, the interest rate they set is called the target cash rate. And this target cash rate represents the rates on unsecured overnight loans between banks. Now, to provide perspective, in 1990, the cash rate was 17%. Today, it sits at 0.1%. So what this means is borrowing money has never been cheaper in the history of humanity. Now, monetary policy is very different to fiscal policy, where fiscal policy is when governments spend money and try to improve taxation in order to boost the economy. For example, the US has currently approved a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. That's a form of spending which is akin to fiscal policy trying to revive their economy and make it better. So, how's it all related? What's the relationship between the three? That is, bonds, 
interest rates and inflation. Now, the thing is, bond prices are not consistent. Using our example from before, where you buy an Australian government bond for $10,000, well, that bond can be sold before its maturity date in the open market. And if it's sold, you may or may not get the original $10,000. And the reasons why you may or may not get the original $10,000 is because of interest rates and inflation. And that's how all of these are kind of related and affect each other. So before we explain that in detail, we need to understand the relationship between interest rates and inflation first. Generally speaking, there is an inverse relationship between inflation and interest rates. That is, when interest rates are low, inflation generally starts to rise. Let's use an example to highlight this point. Now suppose the interest rate is set at 0.1% by the RBA, which is the current rate, This allows banks to borrow more money and lend money out to customers at a discounted rate. This allows customers to borrow money at a low rate to fund their projects. And these projects may be business funding, home building or consumer goods purchasing. All of that drives the economy. Now, as this goes on and on unchecked, it turns out more money is chasing the same amount of goods and services. And this results in rising prices for the same goods and services i.e. inflation. This means the RBA suddenly realises this cannot be going on forever, so they tend to raise interest rates. And suppose now they raise the rates to 0.25% from 0.1%. This affects the bank's ability to borrow money and lend it at similar rates to their customers. So the banks then have to raise their rates too. This means customers end up not wanting to borrow as much money for their home building projects, business funding or consumerism projects, which means the economy doesn't do as well. That is, inflation doesn't happen as much and the brakes on the economy gets put on. So the RBA is using monetary policy to apply brakes on a possibly overheated economy. Now to highlight another point, which is called fractional reserve banking, Um, and, you know, really be prepared because it's a really geeky concept, but it's so fascinating. Have you ever wondered what happens when you have money sitting in your savings account? What actually happens to that money? Because, you know, you log into NetBank or whatever it is that you use and you see money in your bank account. It's an electronic number that appears in front of you. What does that mean? Well, the bank uses that money that you've just deposited and lends it out and makes money on it. It doesn't just sit in some vault somewhere. So the bank, however, is required to maintain a set reserve ration on that money before lending it out. And I don't know what the set reserve ratio is in Australia, but in the US, it's around 10%. So I assume it's somewhere around the vicinity in Australia, but I'm not sure. If any of you know that figure, maybe contact me. I'll be very interested to find out. But... um, I don't know what the exact figure is, but let's assume around 10% of that money has to be sitting in some, you know, bank somewhere and everything else doesn't really need to be available right away. So what does that actually mean? So let's use an example now to highlight this point, right, about fractional reserve banking. Now, supposing you have $1,000 in the bank in your savings account and the bank has to maintain 10% reserve ratio, this means they can lend out up to $900 and make money on it. So they do it. They lend it out. Now, there are two claims on that $1,000. The 
The first claim is from you, the savings holder, because you've put the money into the bank. The other claim is by the bank to the person who they lent the 900 bucks to. And of course, the spare 100 bucks is still sitting in some bank vault somewhere. And this means the supply of money has now increased from $1,000 to $1,900, even though we just started with 1000 bucks. Now, that's mind-boggling, and that's how it works. Now, back to the main topic of the relationship between inflation, bonds, and interest rates. We know that inflation is inversely proportional to interest rates, but how does this affect bond prices? It affects bond prices because if the interest rates rise... This means any new bonds which are issued are likely to have higher coupon rates. And this means your existing bond is potentially less attractive, so the face value of the bond may fall. So let's use an example to highlight this point. So Amy buys a 10-year corporate bond that has a 4% coupon rate. Five years later, she wants to sell the bond. But now the interest rates have risen significantly such that corporate bonds are paying 7% coupon rate. And Amy has five more years left with her bond paying just 4% interest rate. So if she wants to sell her bond, why would anyone buy it for the same face value? Where they can get another bond which pays a higher coupon rate, a high interest rate. Hence, her bond price may go down. The face value of the bond goes down. So if she wants to sell it in the open market, the buyer will say, well, I'm not going to pay, you know, the same money for something that pays me a 4% coupon rate when I can go in the open market and get the same bond with a better coupon rate. So Amy, please negotiate your price. I'm going to pay you less. Now, the interest rates may have risen to calm the overheated economy. Now, suppose Amy decides to hold on to it, hold on to a bond because she's not getting a great rate. And now seven years into a bond investment, there is a massive recession and market crash. And as a result, interest rates are now much lower and newer bonds are only paying a coupon rate of 2%. And remember, Amy's bond is paying 4%. Now, this all of a sudden makes Amy's bond looks really attractive so the bond price may actually be higher. So if she wanted to sell the bond, new bond buyers would be like, well, Amy's bond pays a 4% coupon rate. If I go get another bond in the open market, it's going to, going to pay 2%. So Amy's bond is really attractive now, isn't it? So the concept here is just because Amy has bought a 10-year bond doesn't mean she needs to keep it for 10 years. It can be that she can trade it in the open market based on the current fluctuations of the market, the interest rates, the inflation, and the bond prices. So that's the relationship between interest rates, inflation, and bond prices. Now, before I finish up, two years ago, we went through a period called the inverted bond yield curve. What does that mean? This means for a brief period, short-term bond yields were higher than long-term bond yields. Now, this makes zero economic sense because generally speaking, you get paid interest rates and higher yields if you lend your money to the market for the longer term because you take that risk for the longer term. Now, with the inverted bond yield, you're getting paid higher returns for the short term compared to the longer term. 
This is usually seen in a red flag for the economy. And why is it a red flag for the economy? Because it means people are selling their stocks, potentially, and investing in shorter-term bonds or term deposits because they fear loss of capital in the stock market. And if a lot of people just take their money from the stock market and plow it into bonds, it becomes a disaster for the economy and therefore drives a stock market crash. Remember, the stock market is just a representation of businesses. And when you invest in the stock market, you are invested in businesses that provide goods and services for the public. So hopefully this explains the relationship between bonds, inflation, and interest rates. And in this episode, we went really geeky and talked about the inverted bond curve and also the fractional banking reserve. So slightly geeky episode, but geeks rule. That's about it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using, and please leave a positive review. Actually write something because it means if more people read it and it actually helps get access to the podcast. So the more reviews there are, the better it is for everyone. So please keep it coming. And if you do have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to me via Twitter or Facebook. I'll try and answer them as best as I possibly can. This is Dev Raga from My Millennial Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorised representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services licence 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.